Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. You may have a seat. Well, welcome to City Reach this morning. My name is Timon. I'm the senior pastor here at City Reach Baptist Church, and it's only two weeks to go to conference. Are you excited? Yeah, it's going to be a great time. I'm really looking forward to conference, that time where all of the City Reach churches gather together to uh, celebrate Jesus and be refreshed. You know, as we're singing that song, that's what the real heart of our whole church family is about in this movement called City Reach is, you know, if you're not in it, we don't want it, Lord. <laughs> we just want to be about you and about your purposes. And so if you haven't signed up for conference yet, I'd encourage you to sign up and and sign up today, make sure you're going to be there. You know, if you can't make the Friday, that's okay. Uh, there's still lots of stuff happening. You can make the Saturday or Friday night. Uh, when you came in uh, this morning, we had this uh, thing that we gave to you, Breaking Free, because on the Friday night, we've got a special evangelistic meeting, and we would love for you to invite your friends along to that. We'd love to this whole auditorium to be filled with people who are far from God, who are hearing the message of the gospel. All right, well... Let me pray before we get into the word this morning. Father, just ask that you would move, Father, through the foolishness of preaching. Glorify yourself, Lord, as we come together and gather in the name of Jesus around the word. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, I want to introduce you this morning to Bill. Bill is your average Australian. Bill has grown up not knowing anything about Christianity. His family wouldn't identify themselves as Christian, and he's had no interest whatsoever in religion. But then one day, Bill meets a Christian, and they seem very different to the stereotype of what a Christian is meant to be. Bill then gets invited along by his friend to some other social gatherings where he meets other Christians, and he finds that there's a genuine warmth about them. And he genuinely is intrigued as to what Christianity is all about Because these people don't seem to fit the categories of what he thought Christians were like. And so he starts to come along to church every now and again and check it out with his friend. And then he starts to read the Bible for himself and asks his Christian friend to explain some of the things that he doesn't understand. But still, Bill would never ever think to identify himself as a Christian. He would never think that he would become a churchy, as his friends at school used to call them. Well, now let's fast forward two years, and Bill is now a changed person. Bill regularly goes to church every Sunday, but not only that, he also goes to a midweek Bible study, and Bill has been baptized publicly as a demonstration of his faith. And whereas two years before, Bill would have never in a million years considered calling himself a Christian, now in a million years, he would never consider turning away from his newfound faith in Jesus. Whereas Christianity seemed odd and strange, it's now become central in Bill's life. Now, how do you explain such transformations like Bill? How do you explain genuine conversion? You see, some people would like to suggest that the reason that people like Bill become Christians is because of sociological reasons. Human beings are communal creatures, and therefore every single person is looking for a tribe to belong to. So what has happened is that Bill has found his tribe. Now, while I agree that community does exert a powerful influence upon us, that doesn't really explain Christian conversion as a worldwide phenomenon. 
I mean, I've been to places in the world where actually to become a Christian results in the opposite. It results in you losing your community rather than finding one. I have a friend named Bim from Nepal, for example, who when he became a Christian, he was forced to leave his village and his family. Well, others suggest that the reason that someone becomes a Christian is due to psychological or an emotional need that they might have. They go through a crisis, maybe their marriage breaks down or they're struggling with substance abuse or they have some type of physical or emotional abuse and so they find in Christianity a crutch that provides them the emotional and psychological support that they need. And it is true that many um, find in Christianity support for what they're going through. But still, I've met many Christians who've never been through life-defining crises and they still have faith. So to put Christianity down to simply a crutch I think is mistaken. Well, other people would suggest that the reason that someone becomes a Christian is due to personality. Some people are just suggestible people. Now, I don't know if you've ever watched the English mentalist Darren Patrick, but he likes to show how suggestible and agreeable that people are. I once saw him hand, for example, a losing ticket at the horses to this lady behind the counter And he said to her, this is a winning ticket. And because he said it so confidently, this is a winning ticket. Even though it was a losing one, she paid him the money. So Darren would say that the reason that people, some people become Christians is that they are just suggestible people. You can convince them of anything. But that still doesn't explain someone like Lee Strobel, who was an investigative journalist the most analytical person that you would ever like to meet who became a Christian only after investigating the claims of Christianity. So the source of conversion is something that is very important to investigate. If you do identify yourself as a Christian, it's important to investigate because, you know, if you can just boil down conversion to mere social, emotional, or personal factors, then maybe your faith is a phase that you're going through. You know, you hear that, don't you? Someone sort of becomes a Christian and someone says, well, that's okay. Don't worry about that. It's just a phase that they're going through. They're going to grow out of that. Further, it's important to investigate because maybe you're here today and you don't have the type of social or emotional, personal factors that others have had. And so maybe you think that Christianity is not for you. Maybe you didn't grow up in a believing household. Maybe you've not really experienced a crisis in your life. And Maybe by nature you are more of a skeptical person rather than a suggestible one. Well, the topic of genuine conversion is also very important for our study of the Gospel of John. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying the Gospel of John, and John has said that he has written this uh, uh, gospel, this narrative of Jesus' life, so that people might come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and that they might have life in his name. In other words, that they might experience genuine conversion. And in our study of the Gospel of John, we have come to John chapter 3 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, please open them up to John chapter 3. Or if you're using a device, get your device warmed up and get it on to John chapter 3. And in John chapter 3, Jesus has a one-on-one conversation with a very religious man under the cover of darkness. And the topic of that conversation is the source of genuine conversion. And from this conversation, we are going to see three things this morning. 
We're going to see what genuine conversion is not, what genuine conversion is, and then we're going to see how you can experience it. What genuine conversion is not, what genuine conversion is, and then how you can experience it. So first, let's look at what genuine conversion is not. Let's look at the negative. Well, Jesus says that genuine conversion is not about becoming a religious person. Now, that might be a, quite a shock to you, because most people think that to become a Christian, what it means to become a Christian is that you adopt various religious practices. You start coming to church, you start reading your Bible, you start trying to be a good person. And maybe that's part of the reason why you've never really wanted to investigate Christianity, because to be quite honest, you don't want to give up your Sunday morning sleep-ins. And so maybe you thought, man, I can't become a Christian because I could never do that every Sunday morning for the rest of my life. But Jesus says the good news is that genuine conversion is not about becoming a religious person. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know this because in John 3, a very religious person came to Jesus to speak to him. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we read this. Look down in your Bibles. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So this man named Nicodemus came to speak to Jesus. And we learn two things about Nicodemus. First, it says he was a Pharisee. Now, if you've been around church for some time, you'll probably have a negative view of the Pharisees. You may think that all the Pharisees were, were legalistic hypocrites, but that's not true. In the first century, the Pharisees were widely respected for their intense piety and their deep scholarship. They were men who devoted their lives to the study of the law of God and its application to daily life. But Nicodemus was not just your run-of-the-mill Pharisee. Secondly, it says that he was a ruler of the Jews. The Jews were ruled by what is known as the Saint Hedron. The Saint Hedron was a select group of 70 men who served as the government in Israel. So when you picture Nicodemus, picture him as the cross between like a bishop and a member of parliament. He was part of the cultural elite in Israel. He was deeply religious. And we read in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Now, why by night? Well, perhaps it was because Nicodemus knew that Jesus was controversial and he couldn't risk being seen publicly with him. But maybe it also reflects Nicodemus' heart. You see, in John's gospel, night has an ominous tone to it. Later in John's gospel, when Judas betrays Jesus, he does it under the cover of night. So we can imagine Nicodemus, this cross between a bishop and a, a, a member of parliament, scurrying through the darkness of night, not wanting anyone to see him. And he comes to Jesus and he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs or miracles that you do unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus honors Jesus by calling him a rabbi, even though Jesus had not been through the rabbinical schools. But even though he honors him, what I think we see in these comments by Nicodemus is that Nicodemus is offering Jesus membership in his religious club. You see, as I said, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a highly religious person. 
And it's as if he's saying, we know, Jesus, that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do the miracles you do unless God is with him. So we want to accept you into our club. It's as if Nicodemus is putting his arm around Jesus and he's saying, come on, Jesus, we want you to join us. Now, we all want to be insiders, don't we? The great C.S. Lewis once wrote this essay called The Inner Ring, which describes our common desire to be accepted within the inner ring of whatever group matters to us at the time. And so Nicodemus is basically saying to Jesus, come be a part of the inner ring, the religious and cultural elite in Israel. But Jesus won't play that type of game. Look down in verse 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you want me to join you and your inner ring? You don't even understand. It is you who is on the outer ring with God, Nicodemus. Now, this would have been completely shocking to Nicodemus. If anyone thought that they had a ticket for the kingdom of God, it was Nicodemus. I mean, he was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. His whole life, he had been deeply religious. And he had a pretty good understanding of what the kingdom of God was going to be like. You see, he knew that the Old Testament had taught that God had created a perfect world, but that man had sinned against God. And now the whole world was broken with sin and death. But he knew that the Old Testament predicted that God would send Messiah who would rescue and restore God's perfect rule and reestablish God's kingdom. And if anyone was confident that they had that ticket into that future reign and rule of God, it was Nicodemus. As I said, he was a Jew, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, a deeply religious person. But it's as if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You don't just need a reforming of your parts, Nicodemus. Get this. Nicodemus, what you need is you need a renewal of the whole. You need to be born again. You know, in three days' time, the pride of Queensland is on the line with a state of origin. Now, I know that you South Australians don't care one lick about it, but as a Queenslander, I grew up watching the state of origin and loving every moment of it. And my wife, Tegan... She laughs at me because she knows that when I watch the state of origin, there is still part of me that believes that maybe I will get the call up to play. That maybe if I trained really hard at the age of 44, I would still be able to run on the field for Queensland. Now, of course, if I did go to Kevin Walters, for all you South Australians, Kevin Walters is the coach of Queensland. If I went to Kevy and said, Kevy, put me in, coach, I'd love to play. After he recovered from a laughing pit, pit fit, he would probably say, there is no chance whatsoever, Timon, that you will be able to play. You are too old, too slow, too small. You've got a pretty good sidestep, but you have, need bigger muscles and greater skills. The only way, Timon, that you would ever be able to play for Queensland is if you had a new body. If you were many years younger, too fit toiler, much more skillful, had a lot more muscles. See, Timon, you don't need just a reforming of your parts. You need a complete renovation of the whole, Timon. And of course, it's never going to happen. It would take a miracle. And you see, this is what Jesus is saying right here. You must be born again. It's not just a reforming of your parts. It's about a transformation of the whole, and it 
is a miracle. Now, I know this language, born again, has become a bit of a cliche. When I was at university, I was once talking to a friend of mine, and I told her that I was a Christian, and she said to me, that's good, but you're not one of those born-again types of Christians, are you? (laughs) I think, you know, born-again has sort of become synonymous with maybe a self-righteous person. But according to Jesus, there is actually no other type of Christian apart from one that is born again. If you are a Christian, then you've experienced spiritual transformation. Now, this transformation of the whole does not mean that you become sinless. The Bible clearly teaches that we all continue to struggle for sin for the rest of our life. But it does mean that it's not just about reforming the outside. There is something on the inside that has changed. And you see, this is the difference between true Christianity and religion. Religion is about reformation, whereas true Christianity is about spiritual renewal. So genuine conversion is not about becoming a religious person. It's not about adding to your life certain religious activities and trying to reform yourself through those religious activities. No, Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. It takes a miracle. And you see, this is why some of the hardest people to reach are actually religious people. Because to become a Christian means that you need to turn your back on religion. Now, I know that sounds funny, but it's actually true. And this is very hard for religious people to do because they have a deep investment in their religion. I mean, Nicodemus had studied his whole life and worked very hard to get where he was. But Jesus is basically saying to him, Nicodemus, all of that stuff doesn't count one little bit. You know, I've met many people over the years who go to Mass every Sunday. They practice confession regularly. And they try to live a quote-unquote good life. And when they're confronted with what Jesus says, that you must be born again, some of them walk away because they've invested so much in their religion. You know, I listened to this podcast once about this scammer who would ring up people and he would try to get them to invest in his Ponzi schemes. He would tell them, if you invest just a certain amount of money, then eventually it will pay off big time. And I remember listening to this person who had given, get this, over half a million dollars to this Ponzi scheme, to this bloke. And at this point, his family was saying, stop it. Stop investing. We're pleading with you. But he could not stop. He kept giving more and more money. And when asked why, He said it was because he had invested so much into it and the thought that it was all just a lie was too much to face. And that is why genuine conversion is difficult for religious people because they've invested so much into their religion and the thought that all that they've invested will be wasted is just too hard to face. But in the end, get this, it doesn't matter how much you've invested in religion. It matters that you've been born Again, and maybe you are here today and you, like Nicodemus, are a religious person and you've invested a lot in your religion. Well, let me ask you to realize before it's too late that it doesn't matter how much you've invested because Jesus says that genuine conversion is not about becoming religious. It's not about reforming your life through religion. It's actually about a transformation of the whole through spiritual renewal. So we've looked at what genuine conversion is not. Now let's look at what genuine conversion actually is. What's the nature of genuine conversion? 
Well, Jesus says that genuine conversion involves spiritual rebirth. But exactly what is this spiritual rebirth, being born again? What is this all about? Well, Jesus unpacks this as he continues his conversation with Nicodemus. As we've already said, Jesus shocked Nicodemus by telling him that he must be born again. And to be quite honest, if you were Nicodemus, you'd probably be this as well. Nicodemus is a bit angry, and he thinks that what Jesus has said is completely absurd. He turns to him in verse 4, look down in your Bibles, and says, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus, what you're saying is completely absurd. I'm 50 years of age. I can't go back into my mother's womb and be physically born again. Well, Nicodemus hasn't got it. It's not about physical rebirth. It's about spiritual rebirth. And Jesus answers Nicodemus, and he basically makes three points about the nature of spiritual rebirth. Point number one, he says that spiritual rebirth involves a deep cleansing in your soul. Look down in verse 5 in your Bibles. Nicodemus, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we don't probably get the reference here, but Nicodemus definitely would. As an Old Testament scholar, Nicodemus knew that Jesus was quoting from Ezekiel 36 and verse 25, where God had promised his people Israel that he would make a new covenant with them. And the new covenant would involve this internal cleansing of their hearts. You see, throughout their history, the people of Israel had constantly turned their back on God and worshipped idols. But God had promised that when he made a new covenant with them, he would cleanse their rebellious hearts and replace them with hearts that loved and obeyed him. And Jesus is saying, as Messiah, this is what he's bringing about, the new covenant. So spiritual rebirth involves this deep cleansing in your soul. When you experience the new birth, your old desires will be replaced with new desires to love and serve God. And you see, this is why Christian, you got to get this, this is why Christian spirituality is not primarily about rule keeping, but Christian spirituality is actually about fostering and releasing those new desires that God has already given you the moment you became a Christian. It's not about getting something new when you grow in godliness. It's actually about unleashing what God has already placed within you in your new identity, in regeneration, giving you these new desires and this new heart. But second, Jesus says that the new birth not only involves a deep cleansing in your soul, but second, he says, the new birth is a work that is performed by God himself. Look down in verse 6. Jesus then says to Nicodemus, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Remember, Nicodemus had not understood. He thought Jesus was talking about physical rebirth. And Jesus says to him, Well, yes, that which is born of a human is human, but that which is born of God is God. And what I'm talking about here is spiritual rebirth. And this, this is actually a work of the Holy Spirit. You see, it is God himself who brings about spiritual rebirth. Now, this is absolutely amazing. If you're a Christian here today, you are a walking miracle. You may not realize this, but you are a walking miracle because you were once dead 
And it was God himself who made you alive and gave you this new birth. He brought you forth, not by the will, not by a husband's will, but by the work of God, John would say over in 1 John verse 12. But finally, Jesus says that the new birth not only involves this deep cleansing in your soul, and it's a work that's performed by God himself, but thirdly, he says, even, get this, even though the new birth is mysterious, it still is something that's observable. Look in verse 7. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You know, it's really interesting that the Greek word for spirit and wind are the same word. And so Jesus here is using a play on words. He's saying that just like the wind, you can't see where it comes from. Spiritual rebirth is something that happens on an invisible level. I can't see if you've been spirit. I can't look into your heart and see whether you've been spiritually reborn. But even though I can't see with my eyes and look into your heart and see whether you've been spiritually reborn, I can see the effects. And just like you can't see the wind, you can see the effects of the wind. And this is the same with spiritual rebirth. And I think this is good news for some people who are here today because, you know, when some people become Christians, it's very dramatic. So some people become Christians, they're living in rebellion against God, and then they turn and, and it's, it happens in a moment and they're filled with joy and peace and it's this dramatic experience that they have. And they can tell you the time and the date when it happened. Now I'm sympathetic to that because... You know, oftentimes we can deceive ourselves as to whether we've actually experienced spiritual rebirth or not. But I think when you look at it, it's not about knowing the date or the time necessarily, but it's about whether you see the wind of the Spirit at work in your life. You see, for many others, particularly those who grow up in church, there's probably not a moment that they can remember when they did not sort of have some concept of who Jesus is. And there comes a moment, I've observed, with many of these people, when they come to this point where they say, yes, I do believe in Jesus. I'm all in. And then they typically get baptized as a demonstration of their, of their faith. But still for them, it's difficult for them to tell you the exact moment when they experienced genuine conversion. But the important thing is not to tell you the moment. It's whether you have experienced the wind of the Spirit or not. You see, you might ask me, Timon, how do you know that you are physically alive? And it's not like I would produce my birth certificate and say to you, here's my birth certificate. I was born on the 11th of the 12th, 1974. This proves that I'm alive. No, the reason why I'm physically alive is because I'm breathing. I'm moving around. I'm thinking. Hopefully, I'm making sense <laughs> as I'm speaking. The evidence that I'm physically alive is that you are experiencing my physical life right now. And I think the same is true with spiritual life. The evidence that you are spiritually alive is not necessarily that you could tell me a date when it happened, but rather that you are experiencing the presence, the wind of the Spirit in your life. So what is spiritual rebirth? Well, Jesus says that it involves a deep cleansing in your soul. 
Your old rebellious heart is replaced by a heart that loves God. And Jesus says that it's a work performed by God himself. And Jesus says it is mysterious, but it is observable. So I wonder, have you experienced genuine spiritual rebirth? Becoming a Christian is not about becoming religious, but it's actually about experiencing the new birth in your life. God now comes in and he works in your heart and replaces your heart of stone and gives you a soft heart to God. Has that happened? Is the wind of the Spirit blowing in your life, moving your life along, the sails of your life along? Well, let's look at the final thing that I want to look at today. We've looked at what genuine conversion is not, and we've looked at what genuine conversion is. So let's now look at how do you experience it. Well, Jesus says that the way to experience spiritual rebirth is to put your trust in him alone. You see, Nicodemus is still confused, and he turns to Jesus in verse 9 and asks, how can these things be? And this might be your question today. How do I know that this is all true? Well, Jesus responds to Nicodemus in verse 10 by saying, you are Israel's teacher and you do not know these things? You see, you might be very religious and even a Sunday school teacher and not yet get it. And then Jesus says to him in verse 12, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, Jesus knows He's making some pretty extraordinary claims. But the history of our world is full of people who make extraordinary claims about God. From Muhammad to Joseph Smith to the Watchtower Society. But how could you know that Jesus is true? And what authority does Jesus have to make the claims that he makes? Well, look down in verse 13. Jesus goes on to say, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. You see, Jesus says, the reason why I have authority to make this type of claim that only those who are born again will enter the kingdom of heaven is because I myself came down from heaven. All of those other people who make claims about God are coming up to heaven. Jesus, as the Son of God, came down from heaven. Therefore, I will listen to him. But not only did Jesus come down, it says that Jesus came down so that he could be lifted up. Look down in verse 14. It says, Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever might believe in him will have eternal life. Now, Jesus here is referencing a story in the book of Numbers. In Numbers 21, after the people of Israel had complained against God another time, God sent a plague of snakes and many were bitten. And so they cried out to the Lord for mercy and the Lord said to Moses, I want you to make a snake and I want you to mount it on a pole and anyone who looks up at that pole, that snake mounted on the pole, will live. And so Jesus is saying, just as this serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and anyone who looked at it would live, so I will be lifted up. And he's speaking of the cross, that he would be lifted up on the cross, taking our rebellion upon himself, so that anyone who looks to him in saving faith will experience eternal life 
which is just a synonym for spiritual rebirth. So how do you experience genuine conversion and spiritual rebirth? Jesus says the way is to put your trust in him alone. It's to look to him. But do you know what? When you think about it, there was probably many people who had been bitten by snakes, and they knew that this serpent had been raised up on a pole. But knowing was not good enough. They needed to actually look up in order to live. And knowing about Jesus is not good enough. That's not true saving faith. You might have grown up in this church knowing about Jesus. It's not good enough. You need to look up. You need to place your faith in Jesus personally to forgive you of your sins. So we've looked at what genuine conversion is not. And we've said it's not about becoming more religious. We've looked at what genuine conversion is. It's about a spiritual rebirth. And we've looked at how you can experience it. It's by putting your trust in Jesus alone. You know, last weekend, Tegan and I, we ran a half marathon. And during the run, I was listening to a podcast called Unbelievable. It's a really interesting podcast where they discuss many different topics. For example, they will have an atheist and a Christian debate the resurrection. And on this podcast, it was really interesting, they had the the two sons of two very well-known evangelical leaders, Bart Campolo and Sean McDowell. Now, if you were around in the 80s, you would know those surnames. Uh, Tony Campolo was a very popular speaker, and Josh McDowell was an archaeologist who, after investigating the evidence for the resurrection, became a Christian. And so these two men were very well-known evangelical leaders. They were at the top of the evangelical church in the 80s. But their, their sons, Bart and Sean, both experienced a crisis of faith growing up. Even though they'd grown up with famous dads in the Christian world, they came to a point where they wondered if Christianity was true anymore. And the result was that after Bart had his crisis of faith, he ended up turning away from Christianity and becoming what he labels a humanist. Whereas Sean, after he had his crisis of faith, he ended up embracing Christianity more fully. Now, as I listened, I had a couple of hours as I was running the half marathon. I didn't do it in record time. <laughs> After listening, I think you can explain why Bart and Sean turned away when you examine their conversion stories. Bart said that he became a Christian when he was a teenager. He said that he was struggling, and so he went along to a youth group and at this youth group, he found acceptance and belonging like he had never experienced before. And then one night, he described how at youth group, the lights went dim. And after a few choruses of, I love you, Lord, he had what he described as a transcendent experience. He felt the presence of God. And he said in that moment, based upon his feelings, he believed in God. And he thought that he was therefore a Christian. However, Bart then described how as he grew up into his 20s and into his 30s, he went to work in a Christian mission in the inner city, and after seeing terrible suffering that people go through and experiencing suffering in his own family, he felt that he could no longer believe in God. And now he just attributes that experience he had as a teenager to just natural causes. Sean, on the other hand, as a teenager, when he had his crisis of faith, he came to his father and he told him that he was not sure whether he believed in it all anymore. To which his father, listen to this, his father, Josh McDowell, said something that really surprised him. 
He said, that's okay, my son. Keep investigating the evidence. Look into it for yourself and follow the truth wherever it might lead. And remember, your mother and I love you regardless of what you choose to do. You know, that's great parenting advice right there. And so Sean investigated the evidence and it led him to the point of fully believing that Jesus is the Son of God and having life in his name. Now, when you look... Now, what's the difference? Well, when you look at Bart's conversion story, you, say, you see, I believe, as I said in my introduction, Bart's conversion can just be explained by sociological, psychological, and personal factors. He was looking for a sense of belonging. He found that in the youth group. He had a need. He found that met in this transcendent experience. And he was just susceptible to it as a young person. Now, we have to be very careful with young people that we don't just manipulate them through their emotions. But you know what? If your faith is just an emotional experience, it will not last the test of time. Now, I'm not saying that when you become a Christian, it isn't an emotional experience. We're emotional beings, and it might be an emotional experience for you. But faith shouldn't be equated with an emotion. The difference is, is with Sean. He came to believe not only that Christianity works or fulfills my needs, but he came to believe that Christianity is true. And that's the difference. I'm a Christian not because it works for me all the time, because, because to be quite frank, can I be honest here this morning? There are some times when to me it doesn't feel like Jesus is the Son of God. It doesn't feel that way. To be some, sometimes it doesn't feel like I have the Holy Spirit living within me. But I don't walk by my feelings. I walk by what is true. That Jesus is the Son of God. And if your faith is just built on an emotional experience, then I don't think maybe you didn't even have faith to begin with. Because faith is looking up. And believing in who Jesus actually is, that he is the one who came down so that he would be lifted up so that you would have life. And when you believe and when you trust in him, you are then spiritually reborn. Spiritually reborn. So I worry. I worry for people because I've been a pastor here for 10 years and I've seen people come and people go. And some of those people had great emotional experiences. They came to the front, they cried, they wept. But all it seemingly was, was just an emotional experience. They didn't look up and live. And be reborn. Reborn by the Spirit. You see, becoming a Christian is an experience Being reborn is an experience. It's a spiritual experience. But it's based upon faith. Faith. I hope that's helpful. Is that a bit helpful for you today, you know? Some of you parents out there, you want to raise your kids? Trust in the truthfulness of the gospel. Trust in the Holy Spirit to work. You can't make them be born again. God gives it. 
So don't be so afraid. Just trust in the truthfulness. Teach the gospel. Teach the gospel to your kids. Point them to the truth of God's word and pray for them. Also, I just had an application. This is not written in my manuscript, but just this, I'm just free willing here for a moment. But here, <clears throat> here's another application for some of you who are already, who, who would say you're already a believer? You here this morning, you're already a believer? Okay. Many of you. <clears throat> a beautiful other thing about the spiritual rebirth is this beautiful thing, is if it's a work of God and God has done it, then it won't be taken away from you. Because God has done it. And so isn't that great assurance? He's done it. But it's not about becoming religious or adding a reformation. It's actually about a renewal of the whole. You come to Christ for the forgiveness of sins. You turn from your sin. You trust in Christ. And you see that he was lifted up for you. You believe and trust in him. And you're spiritually reborn. Your heart changes. You may not be able to say this is the moment when it happened, but you'll know that it's happened. Let me pray. <clears throat> oh, Father, we thank you for the word of God and the power of it. And we thank you for what we've learned today from the very lips of Jesus. Many people can make claims about, Father, about what it means to know you, God. But Jesus, the one who came down from heaven, said, unless a person is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he said, turn and trust in me. Look, look to me. I came down so that I might be lifted up. And Father, we just thank you for these moments around the word. And I pray... <clears throat> I pray that you would draw people to yourself. Only you can open hearts and open blind eyes to see what, who Jesus is and what he came to do. Only you can convict of sin and the need for a savior. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that in our church. And I pray that for, for those of us who have experienced the spiritual rebirth, we're so thankful, Father, that it's you who've begun this good work in us. And if you've begun it, you promise to complete it. We can continue to look to you and trust you and just remain in the vine, trusting that you will complete this. And, and so, Father, we just want to, as we respond to you in worship now, just worshiping you, honoring you, we want to just come with open hands and say, it's all about you, Lord. It's not about us. And we don't want anything that is not from you, Lord. We want it all to be about you, Lord. Let's stand together. Let's sing.